Lord Jesus, just as you did this day many, many years ago, we ask that you would open our minds to see the Scriptures. Confess that I'm unable to do this as a frail preacher, as a man myself in need of having my mind opened. And so I ask that you would use these efforts today. And for my friends here, Lord, would you give them the grace of hearing not just the words and the syllables and the thoughts, but their hearts would be listening for your spirit to change them, to make them more like Christ. Lord, help us together now to honor you at these moments. In Christ's name, amen. So in uh, 1987, there was a group of uh, college students at the University of Montevallo. Montevallo is a small little school uh, just outside Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, one, of the, one of the guys in that group was a friend of mine named Brian Furpo. And uh, Brian Furpo and his family have been living for 30 years in Thailand. But in 1987, Brian, with his long hair and his uh, room full of drugs and alcohol, <laughs> became a Christian. And one of the first things they did uh, as a young group of Christians in that dorm hall at Napier Hall was pray together. And they began to pray through Romans 15:20, which basically says that Paul wanted to be sent to the unreached peoples of the world, people who had no witness of Christ. And Brian and his friends began to pray that. And little did he know that a few years later, he and his wife Terry would be getting on a plane and moving to Konkin, Thailand, where they would spend the next 30 years of their life, raise their children, and see literally hundreds of Thai people come to Christ. I'm going to tell you more of that story at the end as I bookend this sermon with that. But what was it that gripped those 18 to 20-year-olds in Birmingham, Alabama, to make them want to pray those prayers and eventually give their life to something like going to Thailand? Well, a simple answer is that they, like the disciples in our passage, were convinced that Jesus Christ was risen. They were convinced he was alive. And they were convinced by what Jesus instructed them, not just with his presence, but by the very eternal word of God that he opened their minds to see. And so that's my prayer for us tonight, is that we too would be that convinced. So let's unpack our passage. I'm going to go through it verse by verse. So if you want to hold your, uh, your order of worship there, you can follow along with me. Verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You see, a Jewish person hearing that law, prophet, Psalms would have heard the whole Old Testament. You, you know that Jesus was alive, so the New Testament wasn't written yet. So there was only one scriptures. It was the Old Testament. And this was the summary. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And Jesus says, they all bear witness about me. That would have been fundamentally shocking to the Jewish ears at that moment. The fulfillment of all those prophecies is standing in front of us. But Jesus intended intend, them to see these truths. But he was also intending them to ground their faith in something more than just a miraculous resurrection. That was true, and it would shape their life. 
But Peter later would say this in 2 Peter 1. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. (laughs) Peter was a witness to the transfiguration on top of the mountain with Jesus. Peter was a witness to the empty tomb. And he says a more fully confirmed power was the prophetic word. And he says it would change you like a lamp shining in a dark place. The morning star rising in your heart. Jesus' point here at the very beginning of this teaching was to ground their faith, yes, in the power of the resurrection, but more fully in the eternal nature of the Word of God. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. The word here in the Greek for open literally is to detangle. There was something garbled in their head, and he had to untangle it. What was it? Well, it had a lot to do with him. But as we'll see in the context, it really had to do with they needed to understand this message of the gospel, this message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins wasn't just a Jewish idea. It was meant for all peoples, all nations. See, what the nation of Israel had done was hoarded it. They had kept it for themselves and they had stopped being a light to the nations. Just as a quick parenthesis teaching here, this is true of all cultures. All cultures, races, generations think they have it and they hoard it. But no culture, no nation, no generation, no language, no society has the power to do what needs to be done through all peoples, which is forgive sins. Only the kingdom of God has that power. And the Jews missed that, that this gospel were to go to all nations. So verse 46, this is how he opened their minds. He said to them, thus it is written that the, that the Christ should suffer and the third day rise from the dead. This is the most basic summary of the good news of Jesus Christ. The Messiah, the chosen one, the Christ would suffer, he would die, and he would raise again. That is the good news of the gospel. But not only did he say the message of the gospel was found in the Old Testament. Look at verse 47. The conjunction there, and. And the repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So not just the message of the gospel, but the actual outplayings of what the gospel does to a person ought to be proclaimed. That's not a New Testament idea. That was in the Old Testament too. And he opens their minds to see this. So the obvious question is, where do we see that? Where do we see this in the law, the prophets, the Psalms? Well, let's real quick take a, 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 you know, a scan of all the Old Testament real quick. Can we do that? <laughs> That's like a fool's errand, right? But let's just try real quick. Where do we see the gospel message and the proclamation of it in the law? The first five books of the Old Testament are called the Torah. Moses wrote all five of them, and the Jews understood that to be the law of God in its totality. Well, the the way the law was inaugurated in Exodus 24 was actually in a pool of blood. I know that sounds gross. But Moses instituted the laws, all the institutes that Israel had, the moral law, the ceremonial law, all those laws, civil laws, by first sacrificing animals for the forgiveness of their sins. Their sins had to first be forgiven before they could receive the law. In fact, the the Ten Commandments, which is sort of the summary, the catch-all, of the whole law 
when, we, when I was teaching my kids this, and they were little, we had hand motions to the Ten Commandments. You know, thou, you shall not murder. We shoot a gun. You know, thou, you, you shall not. Uh, I forgot them all, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> you can trust me. That's my wife. She's here about all. But I know the, I know the beginning. At the beginning, of the, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5 and in Exodus 20, it says this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gives the law implication and we our hands motions were he brought you out of the house of slavery out of the house of bondage meaning the law was given not so that people could then work themselves to be free it was given to already free people i freed you now here's what i expect of you you weren't meant to see the law as a way to accomplish freedom you were meant to see it as a way to live as a free person and in fact the proclamation of that as it, as the scriptures begin in genesis Abraham was told, listen, I'm going to bless you, and I intend for you to be a blessing to the nations. This, this grace of God, this blessing, which we're going to talk about in a second, was not meant to fall only on Abraham or God's people. It, they were meant to be conduits for God's grace to the world. So the law clearly has the message of the gospel and its proclamation. What about the prophets? What about the prophets? Well, most explicitly, Isaiah speaks of these things over and over. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's this clear gospel. Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. There's proclamation. In fact, my favorite Old Testament book to teach through is Jonah, because Jonah is a personal example of a corporate issue. The corporate issue was Israel had, had hoarded the gospel and they had walled themselves off from all the outside world. And here come the Assyrians. And God says, hey, I want the Assyrians to experience my grace too. Jonah, I want you to go to him. And he says, no. And in an almost comical book, we see that Jonah ended up in the belly of a fish because of his disobedience. But what God was saying to them is, I want even a terroristic nation like Assyria to know my grace. Jonah, go tell them. He said, no. The Old Testament is full of prophets telling God's people about the heart of God to the nations. And then what about the Psalms? The Psalms are loaded as well with gospel message and proclamation. Psalm 22 is probably the most clear. This is the passage that Jesus actually quotes from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it talks about his garments being uh, gambled for and the oppression that he would feel. The gospel's clear in Psalm 16. You can read that yourself. At the very end of our service tonight, I'll give the benediction. And the benediction that I choose to give every time I get to preach, I give a benediction, is Psalm 67, 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth and your saving power among all nations. The Psalms clearly teaches the gospel message and gospel proclamation. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite preachers and commentators, says this. That Easter night, the night that Jesus had risen and given this to the disciples, well, they were privately locked up. Jesus grounded gospel and mission in the Old Testament. He showed that the law, the prophets, and the Psalms all taught his suffering, all taught his death, all taught his resurrection, and all taught mission to the world beginning in Jerusalem. The gospel was and is for the world. Then verse 48, look at it. As if they didn't understand there, he then says, you are witnesses 
of these things. Now, the word witness there in, in the Greek is the word martus. And you can just let your semantic uh, alliteration run there. You can understand what that word might mean, martus. But in the semantic range of that word, it has three meanings. The witness. A witness can be a courtroom witness where you just kind of tell the facts. Yeah, I saw Jesus alive. Yeah, I was there at the, at the trial and I saw him. They just give facts. That's, and, the, and the disciples would have to do that. That's one semantic range. It's the second one is more of an internal, an affirmation. Yeah, this is what he did to me. This is how he changed my life. This is how I'm different as a, uh, because of what I have witnessed him doing. And then the third way is what martyr sounds like martyr. A person who witnesses to the point of dying for what they believe in. In the scriptures, 35 times the New Testament use all three ways of this. Tonight, I want us to concentrate on the two. The internal motivation, the internal affirmation, and the external witness. But before we do that, look at verse 49. Because to make sure this doesn't get to be real uh, tie up your bootstraps, Americans getting after it. Verse 49, he says, And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And as he says, you should be able to do this, folks. The witness inside of you that you need, the transformation that must happen inside of you, you're not going to be able to conjure up. And what I'm asking you to do in the Roman Empire in the first century and in Lexington in 2018, you're not going to be able to do. So in order to do that, I'm going to send you a power from on high. I'm going to give you my spirit. And we're going to see why that's important in a second. But let's finish the passage, okay? Before we apply it. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, blessing God. All right, this is really exciting stuff here. Pay attention. What does he mean here by blessing? Sadly, this word blessing has been so domesticated and disarmed of its power in our culture, we say it after you sneeze. <laughs> Bless you. Is that all it means? Just kind of, oh, I hope you didn't blow your eyeballs out when you sneezed. If you're like me, I sneeze real loud. Or, or does it mean like well wishes? Did, did God, did God, does God mean um, he wants to bless you? I hope it goes well with you. Here's kind of a hallmark greeting. Chicken soup for your soul as you get out and witness. A, a well wish. Is that what they mean by blessing? No. In fact, the Old Testament does some cra has some crazy verses about people and their commitment to blessing. Abraham put his only son, Isaac, on an altar to kill him because he believed the blessing was true. Would you do that for well wishes, for a Hallmark card? No. Jacob and his mother uh, conspired to trick Isaac and to lie and deceive to get a blessing. Would you do that for a well wish? Jacob, the night he was going to confront his brother, wrestled with God and in a moment of realness said, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. And I will not leave here until you bless me. And God breaks his hip. I'll bless you. You're going to know this is about me, not about you. Would you do that for well wishes? No. It's because the word blessing is misunderstood. And I want to help us because Jesus stands in our passage and blesses them. What in the world was he doing? Well, it goes all the way back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, 22 and 28, we have the first account of blessing. And in 28 is when he blesses Adam and Eve. And God, it says this, And God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. 
We read that sort of as a, as a formula, right? Oh, okay, God gave me a command, be fruitful, multiply. Oh, then he gave me the resources to do it. I'll get busy doing it. Sort of like God helps, himself, God helps those who help themselves type theology that most of us have. Oh, man, great. God gave me some resources. God gave me some relationships, gave me a command. I'm a good Western thinker, American. I can get after it. Great, thanks, Lord. It's not what this phrase means. In fact, the English doesn't help us there. But if we were to translate it literally, from its Hebrew origins. It would read kind of wooden, kind of, you know, kind of weird, but this is what it would say. God blessed them to ensure that they would be fruitful and multiplying. That phraseology, which is accurate to its original language, changes it from a prescriptive command to a promise to be fulfilled. See, what I'm saying is this was a promise God intended to fulfill, not a prescription for you to get busy fulfilling. God was going to do this. How was he going to do it? By blessing them. He was going to ensure that they would be fruitful and multiply. That all over the world there would be more of his people. And he ensured it by blessing them. It was a lot more than well wishes. It was the abundance of his provision. It was the abundance of his protection. It was the abundance of his power. You see, because he did it despite these men. Adam, Eve, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, David, Will Witherington are all messing this up day in and day out. And God's promise is not hinging on my good or screw ups. He will do it. And in fact, the Bible doesn't read as this nice religious book. It's complex with murders and rapes and wars and all this stuff that are screaming. It is about God. God is going to do his promises. It's not going to be up to you. But you folks have the privilege of joining God in the wave of his grace that's pouring over the nations. All the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. It's not in question. Why? Because he blessed them. And here our Savior, before he goes back to heaven, tells them, go back to the city and wait. Power's coming. And then he blessed them. Whew. Man, you know those boys were like, yeah, we got the power now. Little did they know it was coming, right? So let's, let's apply this. I want to do this in two ways, as quick as I can. First, I want to apply this in the internal way. Because the question is, do you see yourself as a witness? Not do you witness. Do you see your life, your soul, and the transformation happening to you as a witness to the resurrected Christ? Paul told Timothy this, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. What was happening internally to Timothy was bearing witness that Jesus is alive. There is a gospel expectation of transformation. Listen, you cannot encounter the risen Savior and stay the same. You can't. He does and will change you. There's an internal witness. So how, how, do, we, how do I gauge this? Well, let's just use the grid Jesus gave the disciples. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Real quick. How does the law transform you? Well, Martin Luther had three uses of the law. First, it was sort of a curb that uh, it kind of curbed the behavior. And you can implement laws. This is why we call ourselves a Judeo-Christian society, whatever that means. But it means that we apply ourselves the, the law of God so that we kind of don't have a society that's as bad as it could be. It kind of hems us in. That's one use of the law. The second use of the law, though, is a little more accurate to the Bible. 
that it serves as a mirror, is what Luther said. You look at it, whoa, you see how far you fall from what the law says, and it forces you to Christ. That's what the law does. You look at it, you see it as a mirror, and you turn to Christ. I, I tell people all the time that, you know, when I became a Christian, I saw the scriptures as my mirror. Then I got married, and I had another mirror. And then I had four children, and I lived in this house of mirrors. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, my, I'm seeing my sin all over the place. What do you do at that point? You run to Christ. That's the purpose of the law. And then thirdly, the law teaches, uh, it was a guide, that's what he said. How do free people live? They live this way. So the telltale question about the law is whose righteousness do you trust in with it? Because if you look at the law and you trust in your own righteousness, then you will actually be judged by the law. <laughs> if you, if you, I mean, you can. You can say, I'd like to be tested by the law. Uh, okay. Well, then it will judge you. Or you can appeal to someone who com completely fulfilled the law, which is Christ. And he's the righteousness. So you witness to the world about the internal change in your heart, about how you relate to the law. And, and, the, and the, the common word that's used about this is if you're not trusting Christ's righteousness, you're trusting in your self-righteousness. Probably heard that word. But it's interesting, self-righteousness is a two-sided coin. The top side is the one we're kind of most familiar with. Someone who parades around and tells you how great they are and how many Bible verses they have and how many Lecrae albums they have and, and how, many, you know, uh, how, good, how many good things they've done, what clubs they belong to, who they know in Christ and who they listen to, how many podcasts they have, you know, all that kind of stuff. These are the self-righteous people who are trying to tell you, hey, I'm good. I've got the law pretty much all figured out, and I'm, 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 I'm going to trust my own righteousness. And you know that kind of person. But there's another side of that, and this is the person who constantly parades around their failure, how much they break the law, how much they continually live in guilt and shame, indicating that my own self-contempt is better than Christ's sacrifice. Listen, Christ can't pay for my sin. It's too great. I'll just wallow around in my own self-righteousness. And you can, you can discern which one you are. Either one is self-righteous. Either one requires you go to Jesus. He will humble you and show you, listen, you've got a lot of stuff you need to deal with. I'll deal with it for you. Or if you see yourself as a failure, Christ covered you. Christ was, a, was condemned for you. In fact, Tim Keller says it this way, cheer up. You're a lot, lot worse than you think. And you're a lot more loved than you can imagine. That's a great phrase. So you bear witness to Christ's work through trusting Christ. What about the prophets? The prophets were the kind of people you didn't have over for dinner. They ate locusts and wore kind of weird clothes and they smelled funny and they said awkward things at the wrong times and wrong places. You didn't have them over. But their goal was to speak the truth to you. Uh, one of my favorite quotes that Robert Cunningham has, he says, Jesus said the truth will set you free. But the truth first has to disrupt, unsettle, and sometimes crush you. But it will set you free. That's the role of a prophet. So how do you witness the internal change in your heart of Christ as the prophet? Are you right in your own eyes? Do you have prophetic voices in your life? Are you listening to Jesus, is he speaking the truth to you? Even if it's disruptive and unsettling, are you listening? He said over and over, he who has ears, let him hear. You, you witness to the world through the transformation of the prophet speaking to your heart. Thirdly, how do you, how do you witness through the Psalms? 
And the Psalms, and Justin has done so much good work on this. I mean, your whole album is just rich with it. But a Psalm is a sacred song. And the Psalms are the emotive part of the Bible. This is full of emotion, anger, depression, joy, uh, triumph, sadness. And in fact, it, it, it is the part that we ought to feel the most in. Andrew Fletcher, a 17th century Scottish politician, really, he said this. He says, I don't care who writes the laws of a nation. I want to meet the one who writes their songs. Because what he understood was, you want to get the pulse of a culture, the pulse of a nation? Listen to their songs. It's the emotive part of life. And in Christ, you're meant to feel something. So how do you witness the Psalms to the world? You do so in your emotional response to Christ. Some of us are overly stoic and mechanical in our faith, which leads to dogmatism and cynicism, a critical spirit, and sometimes just flat out being mean. But some of you are blown to and fro by the whims of your emotional experience, which leads to a fickle and finicky faith, lack of peace and stability. But the Psalms say to you, how do you feel about Jesus? We're going, to see in a, we're going to see in a second around the throne room what's characteristic of the nation's coming is they sang a new song. They had a new psalm for Jesus. So let's move now to the external witness. You see the internal witness. You are a witness. The external witness. I prayed a lot about this over the last couple of weeks. And here's, here's, the, here's, how, I want to, here's how I want to give you this application. There's a passage in Revelation 5, which I, I encourage you to go read in its fullness. And I actually preached a sermon on it months ago called Weep No More. You can go get it. But basically Revelation 5 is the picture of the end of the promise of Gen Genesis 1.28 of being fruitful and multiply. It's the end where we see all the nations. So Revelation 5, John has this vision of a, of a scroll being held in the, in the, in the, actually in the right hand of God. And on this scroll, written on the front and on the back, is the total history of, of God's will. Everything you want to know about God's will is on this scroll. And it's why you have brown hair. Why you were born in Lexington. Why your parents divorced. Why your granddad died of cancer. Why there's wars. All of it's right here in the scroll. And John says that the scroll was totally sealed. It says it had seven seals. It was totally sealed. Can you imagine that? Basically, it's sealed. No one can open it. And John begins to weep. What, there's no one who can explain the world to me. There's no one who's going to define for me all this horrific stuff that's gone on. It's sealed. And he begins to weep. I, I would too. There's a lot of things in my life. If I didn't know God was behind, I'd be in a, an utter mess. But then the, one of the elders says, John, 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 stop weeping. There is one. There is one who can open the scroll. Who can break its seals? There is one. And in Revelation 5, 6, listen to this. And between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns, which is total power, with seven eyes, which is total wisdom, seven spirits, which is total presence, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. New song. Psalms fulfilled. 24 elders. Old Testament, 12 sons of, 12 sons of Israel. 12 New Testament, 12 disciples of Christ. All there. Four living creatures. North, south, east, west. The whole earth. This is a scene of totality, fulfillment, and finality. And they're singing to the Lamb who was slain. But notice, if you, could, if you were listening there, what was in the hands of the elders as they fell down and worshipped? It says they had golden bowls of incense. And then John defines that as the prayers of the saints. This is my application externally for you. It's prayer. Will you pray? Because preachers for years have given many very appropriate applications. Let me read you a couple. David Platt in his book Radical, which has been received with varying degrees of acceptance, challenges the casual, domesticated, comfortable Christianity of our day. And he says this, Every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. John Piper, in a sermon given 18 years ago at a conference called One Day, was pleading with a group of 18 to 25-year-olds that they would not waste their life in building a lifestyle that one day results in retirement by merely playing golf, riding a boat, and collecting seashells. This is what he said. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. Don't waste your life. As the last chapter before you stand before your creator, you don't want to say to him, here's my shell collection, Lord. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon, 19th century prince of preachers, what he was called. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. C.T. Studd, the Michael Jordan or LeBron James or Kobe Bryant, whichever one you like, of cricket, he was a cricket stud, said he gave up his life to go to China. If Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice too great can be. For me, a mortal man to make, I'll make it all for Jesus' sake. Only one life will soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. John Calvin, the great Presbyterian reform theologian that we love around our parts, said this. Nothing could be more inconsistent with the nature of faith than that deadness of heart which leads a man to disregard his brethren and to keep the light of the gospel choked up in his own breast. But I'll choose today's, for my quote and my application, another 19th century man named Horatius Bonar, and he says this, It's much to be feared that we are weak in the public proclamation of Christ because we are weak in private prayer. Now you think at a point right now in a sermon like this and having read those very challenging quotes, I might challenge you to move to Africa or at least walk next door and share the gospel with your neighbor. That'd be a good application. You might think I might challenge you to move from the suburbs and buy a house down here in the downtown precinct or at least give a little more money to the church this year. Those would be good applications too. But this evening I'm going to challenge you to pray. Because I believe that when you pray, your will, your heart gets strangely morphed and transformed into his heart. And he is perfectly well at telling you what application he wants you to do with this. I want you to seek God's face. I want you to listen to him for your 
own personal life, your roommates, your family, this church, will you pray? What is certain about the nations being reached, as we saw in Revelation 5, is the evangelism techniques of the world will pass and go. The powers and, and churches on, in, on earth will come and go. These churches, this church won't be here in 100 years, probably. What is certain that will be around until Christ comes back is in the throne room of God as the scroll of heaven is unfurled is the prayers of the saints. They will always burn in His presence. Pray. When Jesus was ending the near of his, nearing the end of His life, He gathered His disciples. And in Matthew 9, He has this amazing passage where He's, where he's looking out over the crowds and, he, and it says that He had compassion over the crowds because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then, he, and then in, a, in a moment of, of I, I just think, I wish I could have been there. And he says, guys, come here. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. That's how chapter 9 of Matthew ends. You know how chapter 10 begins? And Jesus sent out the 12. Who was the answer to his desire for them to pray earnestly for laborers? Themselves. This is what I mean. When you start praying about these truths, about being a witness internally, witness externally, your heart will change. You will bear witness to the risen Savior and how you live and how you're being transformed. And God will move you out into the world in a way that's appropriate to his will. In fact, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, but then in the Bible, he also wrote the book of Acts. And they were meant to be one sort of uh, history lesson. Because he says to Theophilus, who he's writing to, I'm writing this first account so you understand about Jesus and what he did. My second account is about Jesus' friends and what they went and did after he ascended. And 29 times in the book of Acts, before they did anything, it says they were praying. 29 times. Pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to change you inwardly and send you out. We're coming to this table. I don't know the right order here. Let me get my book here. Okay, we're going to sing a song. Well, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me frame this for us. Can I frame it and then we'll sing, Justin? This table is the table of our Lord. We do this every week. And what I want you to, the word I want you to have in your mind tonight is this is a table of intercession. Where Jesus says two things in his intercession. Romans 8.34 says, who is to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who is at the right hand, and he is interceding for us. Or Hebrews 7. He is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he is always making intercession for them. What you need to hear at this table is Jesus says to God the Father, Father, that's Will. I died for him. Pour out your grace on Will. Put your name in there. He knows your name. He's called you by name. And he is interceding before the throne of God on your behalf. Don't let that sinner die. I bought her. I bought him with my blood. This is a table of intercession for you. And make no mistake about it, this is a table of intercession for the nations.
Jesus from the throne room looks out over the world and says, those are my nations, God. I purchased them with my blood. Send a witness there. They're mine. And so as you come this morning, you need to claim the intercessory promises of Christ on your own behalf. But it's not meant to stay with you. Those intercessory promises are now meant for you to join the Lord Jesus Christ in interceding for the nations. He's alive. And He rules over the affairs of the world so that His name would be great among all peoples. Let's pray. Oh God, as we prepare to come to this table of intercession, wherever we are this morning, would You change our hearts? Lord, I know many in this room, and I know that in a room this large there are many struggles and trials and anxieties and fears. Lord Jesus, would you come and bear witness to our hearts that we are indeed yours. And then, Lord, we can walk out of these doors, and within minutes we will see in our face the utter brokenness of this city. Help us not to be dead in our hearts and blind in our eyes to the needs of this world. But help us by your Spirit to bear witness to this city, to this world, for your glory and for your great name we pray. Amen.